Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. I have a few comments to make on, on the outline from last week, and I wanted to talk about that. That We saw last week the Greeks coming to Jesus, symbolizing the fact that the Gentile world is now coming to understand who Jesus Christ is. They, they want to know about Jesus, even as the Pharisees shut it down, as institutional Judaism shuts it down, we see that the Gentiles are now coming to Jesus, they want to, they want to see Jesus, and Jesus spent, in, in that passage, we're talking about John 12, verses 20 to 30, Jesus talks about the Son of Man being glorified through crucifixion, and we talked about that, and Jesus used the example of the kernel of wheat dying that the kernel of wheat can't do anything until the wheat, you put it in the ground, and that one kernel effectively dies to itself, but, be, but is multiplied and becomes multiple seeds. And, and, and as a result of that, a glorious reaping takes place from that one seed. And so Jesus saying is that until man dies to himself, he gives up his life, he will have no life everlasting. So that's the key. Jesus said you have to give up your life Give up what you, what you think is important in this world. Uh, and as you do that, live for Christ. And, and this is the lesson that really needs to come out of this. And so there is a false hope, a false hope that we see that many Christians have. And the false hope is this. They believe that they say that they're saved. And I never dispute anybody that says that they're, they're saved. That's between them and God. But they're saved, but yet they have not fully submitted their life to God. They have not said to Jesus, you are the Lord of every aspect of my life. What they say is, Jesus, you're God, and I know you died for me, but now uh, I've got a lot of things in my life that I'm good at. See, i got things in my life that I've been educated about. I've had training. I've got experience. I'm good at these things. So here's the deal, God. You take care of this stuff over here, and I have this stuff over here. And all this stuff over here that you think you have, you have in control is headed for a huge disaster. It's headed for you. And I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's your personal life or if it's your business life. Because until you turn it all over to Jesus, until you fully submit to him, and you say, Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of everything that, that I have in my life, we're, we're going nowhere. And, and Paul said that uh, so well. Uh, turn, if you would, just to look at one simple verse. You know, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, he says it so well. It's the cross of Jesus that indicates to me that I have been crucified not only with God, but crucified to the world. Meaning I'm not sold out to this world. My life does not begin and end in this world. Uh, I have a vision of the beyond. And this is why when we live like this, that we can face even the end of this life, not with fear and trepidation, but with great joy and hope. Sure, we know what it means. None of us now want to lose our loved ones. I mean, that's a very painful thing. But when we understand 
that we, that we are dying to ourselves, that God has a much greater life ahead of us. Much greater. For eternity. And we are focused here on what? 80, 90, okay. Uh, I'll drink a, a glass of wine to you. Well, not here, I won't. But, you know, as they say, I had a, I had a great, great grandfather who, who lived to be 100. And on his 99th birthday, somebody toasted him. This was in Italy and said, ah, chantan, which means live to be 100. And he goes, oh, don't curse me. <laughs> which gives you a pretty good indication of what the human mind is like, right? I'm 99, but boy, don't, don't. Sell me short, I want to get to 100. And that's how we are. You know, that's how we are. And we don't want to be like that. You don't want to be so anchored to this life. You don't want to be so anchored to this life that you go, oh, you know, I can't leave this life. I laugh, uh, one and I laugh. I see some of the uh, older people in, in Port Royal, some of them are, are well into their 70s and 80s and they're running. They're just like, like they're, they're exercising and they're lifting weights. And, and I said to Linda, they will do anything, anything to stay here. They're going to make sure that there's not a chance, not a chance that something's going to come into their radar system that will knock them off if they have to run a marathon, if they have to live a th lift a thousand point of pounds. And look, I'm not saying you don't take care of your body, but don't become obsessed with the world. You understand? Don't develop the obsession uh, about the world. We live in this world, but really our mindset is on the other side. Amen. Our mindset is on the other side. Uh, and so that's the point. We want to give it all up to Jesus. And so the issue then for us, as I bring that section of, of John chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 20 to 30, when Jesus talks about this issue and about the Son of Man being crucified and glorified, the issue then for us is how do we follow Jesus? How do we follow him? What's the issue? Because a lot of us are Christians and, if, and say we're saved, but we're not truly following him. Well, there's four points, I think, that we can focus in on. The first point of following Jesus is the issue of self-denial. Take up our cross and follow him. Deny self. Not everything that you want enhances the cross of Christ. And some of that may be, we have to give up some of our leisure time, some of the activities that you love to do, because God may have something more important for you to fill in your leisure time. You know, as I said to the 11 o'clock class, I don't know if I said it to this class, when I, when I really looked at, at what I, I thought would be my older life in, in Naples, I don't want to say retirement because I really still work, but I thought, well, this is going to be good. I'll finally uh, get to become a good golfer. <laughs> Boy, was that, a, was that a fantasy. And I realized that even if I golfed three times a week, I still would not be a good golfer. But what I have found is that God has delivered me from that fantasy. Because now if I golf seven times a year, that's about it. All right? That's seven times a year. Now, I never thought that would be the case. But what happens? God gives you a vision of what he wants for you in your life. Yeah. So between writing the Bible studies uh, and, and the men's groups and this, the visitations in the hospitals and the meeting of people, you know, multiple times a week, I don't have time for golf. All right? Now, I'm not denying myself. It's because God has given me a vision of something greater. Can you understand what I'm saying? 
So it starts as self-denial, but as God expands your mind and your heart, it's not self-denial, it's a gift and a privilege. And I say the same thing applies to you guys who, who, who go to some Caribbean islands uh, and visit the poor and help their lives. I see Jack Vanderhoff here, I know he does that. Uh, the guys, people that are going to the prisons, Bill Ringland. I have people uh, over here who are going into the school systems and, and, and reading the Bible and teaching the Bible. Uh, St. Matthew's house. This class has many, many different people who have given up what we call our leisure time to follow God and do that in so many ways. Uh, and so that's the first thing. Self-denial. Uh, take up our cross and follow him. Um, and, and I want you to see uh, the second thing is that we have to follow Jesus in service. We have to follow Jesus in service. Turn to uh, Matthew 25. And by the way, if you have the outline from last week, it, it, I, I, I showed that as Mark in, chapter, in line number six. It's Matthew. Matthew 25. You get a good idea of how Jesus looks at how we're supposed to follow him. This gives you very specifics. Matthew 25, verse 31. And by the way, Jesus, this is Jesus here in verse 30, 31, referring to himself as the Son of Man. And I will speak to that later today, or if not today, later next week, about why Jesus used that title, Son of Man. That's what he called himself, Son of Man. He, ne he, he never really called himself the Messiah. He called himself the Son of Man, and you'll see why. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? Clothe you? When did we see you sick? Or in prison, or go to visit you. And this is Jesus speaking now. Verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. There it is. There it is. There's the game plan. That's how you serve Jesus. That's how you follow Jesus. That's the thing. And you know, I always tell you that one of your life verses should be Ephesians 2.10. For we know that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Amen. So there it is. There's the essence of why you're here and what, what it means to follow Jesus and how he wants us to follow him. And so in so many ways, you need to look to what needs to be done to advance the kingdom of God. The people of God are in need. They're in need. And as God is calling people to him, to his kingdom, there are so many people that need your intervention in so many different ways. That's why I believe that God gave us this privilege to help this grandmother. That was a gift. God gave us that gift to be able to look and see what we can do to advance the kingdom of God. Uh, and that's what's going on. And so third, we serve Christ by following him in holiness. 
That means we put, every, we put aside everything in our lives that we know is outside of his will. All right? Let me make it simple to you. You've been living, you've been going to Bible study for years. You've been reading the Bible. You've been going to church. You don't need me to tell you what's outside of the will of God. You know. All right? And I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not giving you a simple list of rules and regulations. Yes, no, yes, no. You know generally what does it mean? What does it mean in terms of the holiness that God wants from us? The holiness. Uh, and so you have to ask God to, to um, expand your heart, to take those things out of your life that are not advancing the kingdom of God. My father used to phrase it very simply. Is it bringing you closer to Christ or further away? That was a simple test. Is this activity or this thing or this association or this relationship, whatever it is, whatever generically, will it bring you closer to the Lord or will it take you further away? That's the answer. You see, it's not a list of, of, of do's or don'ts. The question is, is it drawing me? Will this bring me closer to Christ? Um, and, and within his will. And fourth, we must be faithful to his teachings. He's made it very clear in so many ways what, what his will is for us. Are we being faithful to his teachings? Uh, and we want to do that. That's just like that teaching in Matthew in so many ways. And so when we, when we understand all this, and, and by the way, this doesn't mean that one day you have a eureka moment. Oh, now I get everything. Oh, oh. It just came to me like a meteor crashing to earth. No, it's not like that. You see, it's a walk. And then there's clarity. Oh, I understand that a little bit more, Lord. And then there's a more walking. Oh, I understand that more. And then there's a falling and a tripping and getting up and you, you, you made a mess. And the Lord teaches you. You see what happens when you do your own thing? Yes, I, now I understand. And then there's daily walking and advancing and sanctification. This process, step by step by step. Lord, the Lord is teaching you and putting wisdom into your, your life and you understand that finally you can come and say what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Read that with me, please. Turn to that, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 11 and 12. And here Paul is, is speaking about Jesus and he's saying this is a trustworthy saying and it actually is a hymn from the first century church, but, the, but it's fantastic. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot disown himself. How great is that? How great is that? You got any doubts about eternal security, folks? Right there. Right there. If we are faithless, he will still remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Cannot disown himself. He planted this, the Holy Spirit in your heart. He gave it to you, and that's the Spirit of God. And that's what it's about. So you understand this. And so what an incredible understanding this is. I, I want you also to turn to Matthew 16, verse 24. This all relates to this part of the scripture. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. 
What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming to his kingdom. And so you see this great understanding of self-denial, dying to self, giving up of self. And that's what Jesus wants from us. That's the kind of life that he wants us to live. And that's what this section of Scripture refers to. Now, moving on to John chapter 12, uh, this lesson that I had prepared today. John chapter 12, verses 31 to 34. Okay? Start with uh, John, John, John chapter 12. All right? We'll start with verse 30. And you know here that Jesus had just said, Lord, be glorified in my death. Be glorified. And a, uh, and, and a voice from heaven repeated, I will be glorified. And so verse 30, Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And that's what the point of this lesson is going to be. Who is this Son of Man? Why would Jesus use this title, Son of Man? Why would he almost never refer to himself except one time uh, implying it in a discussion with the Samaritan woman? He spoke almost uh, universally about being the Son of Man. And so when you study this, and you study the, uh, the death of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion, you'll see that nothing in the whole of human history has attracted men and women like the uplifted Christ, meaning Christ dying on the cross. Nothing, nothing, no religious movement, no, no recitation of philosophy has attracted as many people as that one epic vision. Uh, and this attraction is brought out of this section of scripture when we see the Greeks coming to Jesus, wanting to know who this son of man. They, remember, these were real people. And these Greeks were, were trained in philosophy. They understood Plato. They understood Socrates. They understood Aristotle. They knew all about philosophy. And yet they were high and dry. They needed something more. Why? They needed a savior. They needed someone who would save them from sin. Someone who could give them life everlasting. No philosopher ever said that he could do that. And that's why they're drawn to Jesus. And that's why the human race sees this image of Christ dying on a cross, crucified, and how much it means to them. And so here's the point for you. Only the crucified Christ will draw people to God. I don't care about social programs. I don't care about religious issues. I don't care about religious philosophy. I don't care about theology. You could study theology until the sheep come home. And the study of theology is not going to bring people to God. It is the image of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, dying for your sins. That is the image. And you need to understand this as you speak to a lost world. You want to attract people to God? That's what you focus on. 
That's what you focus on. You bring their attention to that. That's how it, you, you reveal to people the incredible mercy and love of Almighty God the Father. That he would plan this from the very foundation of the world. That Jesus would come and die that way. Uh, and so understand that, that the essence of humanity is that we will not voluntarily come to this. That, we are, that if, if left to our own devices, we would die in our sins. And I'll prove that to you. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. And nobody got this more or understood it in a more profound way than Paul. And here's what he's talking about. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see how man is? That's what man is. Even sitting and looking up at the stars and recognizing that only some incredible being could have put this all together. What do we do? We go inward. We go inward. And instead, we wind up making images of reptiles and birds and worshiping these images instead of understanding that, the, that God, the sovereign God, the Spirit of God is done, has, has created us all. And so that is why, that is why, if you think about it, why do we have to make such an effort to win people uh, and ask God to bless our efforts? It's because the nature of the beast, the human beast, is such that they don't think they need a Savior. They're happy where they are. They like their sin life. They like the fact that they're in control of their own ship. Yeah, I like that. You know? Oh, you'll get people who say, well, I'm, I'm open-minded. No, you're not. You're not open-minded. You're not open-minded. Because if you were truly open-minded, you would come immediately to the conclusion that there had to be a sovereign being in charge of this. No, you're closed-minded, and you have self-determined that only you know what's best for you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the road to hell. That's exactly what Satan would like. Satan likes nothing better than for you to say, I, I think I can handle it. I'm in charge of my own life. I can make my, my own rules. Uh, after all, I'm a good person. There it is. There, there it is. There's the key word. After all, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And as soon as you hear that, the flag should go up. All right? Because that's a person who is basically given over to pride. That's pride. Because only a person who was sold out to God who understands and traveled and looked within his heart knows that he's lost, knows the dark nature, knows that he can't save himself. Only that person knows I'm not good. Oh, that we think I'm good. My friends think I'm good. Maybe even your wife or your husband thinks you're good. But you're not good. You're not good. And the reason is you're using the wrong measuring stick. Oh, look at my neighbor next to him. Oh, I should get the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> That's right. That's the stick to use. That's good. And when you die, make sure you use that same argument to let Jesus know why you should go into heaven. Because you look so good next to your neighbor. Instead, the measuring stick should be Jesus Christ. 
That's the measuring stick. So when you get up and you look in the mirror, here's what you should see. You should see Jesus looking back at you. And it's only when you get to that point. Let me tell you, I've lived a lot of my life like that, comparing myself to other people, being self-satisfied. You know, oh, I'm a Christian. I love God. All right. And, and look, look, I'm doing good things. I'm trying to be a good person. But when you get to the point when you see Jesus looking back at you in the mirror, oh, it's not so good. You understand? Now your righteousness is like filthy rags. You recognize, oh, I can't live like this, God. I'm sorry that I speak like this. I'm sorry that I think like this. I'm sorry that I'm not reaching out to the people you want me to reach out. And you know what this is like. It's like when, when, when people come to you or you're asked, I'd like you to consider doing some, some work in the church or some work to help somebody in the kingdom, something, and you'll say something like this. Well, let me pray about it. You know what that is. Let me pray about it. That's church weasel language. I said that on the radio. That's church weasel language. You understand? That's what Christians do. That's, you know, uh, you know, in the world, we go, let me think about it. In the church, we go, let me pray about it. Yeah, you're going to pray about it. You're going to pray about it. But here's the, here's the answer. That when you have spoken to God a hundred times during the day, and you've asked him to pray and, 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 and reveal to you what you should do, that when these opportunities come your way and somebody needs something and they and you're asked, here's the answer. Will you and you go, yes. Will you help? Yes. Will you do? Yes. Why? Because you recognize that this is exactly how God wants you to live your life. And so you, you see this uh, all coming together and you see it in this passage when, when, when we understand that Jesus is saying the Son of Man... The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. He will be lifted up. And that image of lifting him up on the cross will be the very image which will draw hundreds of millions and billions of people to God. That's what we need to attract people to God. Not programs. Not social issues. Not attractions. Not guest speakers. All good. You understand? All good. I'm not condemning it. But at the final analysis, it is the image of Christ crucified that will draw people. And so you see it, that they will be inclined to live in their sin. They will be inclined to slide to hell. They will be not, they will be not inclined to embrace uh, God. And so the question becomes in verse 34, the question is posed, who is the Son of Man? And here's the thing, you realize that the Jews... The contemporaries of Jesus, the Jews who Jesus came to save, the Jews who were God's chosen people, believed in God. They believed in God. They worshipped God, or so they thought. Right? They worshipped the law. But in worshipping the law, they still believed in God. And so Jesus now is referring to himself as the Son of Man. And he has prophesied here that the Son of Man uh, should be glorified. That was in verse 23 of this chapter. Well, how could anyone connect the Son of Man with suffering? How could anyone connect the Son of Man with suffering? And so what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of a first century Jew Hearing this man, Jesus of Nazareth, referring to himself 
a son of man. Well, what would that mean to you? Turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 7. And this is an important chapter. Daniel is an important book because Daniel is a prophetic book. God revealed the future to Daniel uh, in a way that hardly anybody else had that kind of vision. And someday we will study the book of Daniel. But right now I want to focus on Daniel chapter 7 and let you know that this is now about 600 B.C. or so. So 600 years before Jesus Christ will be born. Daniel has been taken into captivity uh, uh, by the Babylonians. He is uh, in Babylon. He has become one of the prime ministers of Babylon. God has blessed him. And now he's, he's got, been given a vision of the future, of what will happen in the future. And so if you look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night... I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen? Amen. That, ladies and gentlemen, that is the Son of Man. Now here's the kicker. Here's Daniel writing about this at about 600 or 580 B.C. in that area of time. And what happens? The rabbis have basically failed to teach the prophetic books to the Jewish people the last 400 years before Christ is born. And so here you have the very word of God being given to them, and they not studying it, they not reading it, and so Jesus is born and lives, and his ministry is taking place, and he's basically citing Daniel for who he is, for what God said he would be, and they are clueless. How do you like that? And they are clueless. Because this is who Jesus said that he was. Uh, that he would reign forever. And that is why this title that Jesus uses, uh, based on my research, is, is virtually the only title Jesus used for himself. He used it 69 times in the Synoptic Gospels and 12 times in the Gospel of John. How do you like that? Uh, and what does it mean? It's important because it speaks to us of the humility of Christ. Think about it. He's God. He was there at the beginning. He was there at the creation. He was the creative agent designated by God the Father. He created all this. We know it from Scripture. Yet, what does he say? Does Jesus say, I am God? He says, I am the Son of Man, showing the great humility and, the, and his desire to be tied with his creation, with his brethren. Uh, what a great picture it is of Jesus. Of course he's the son of man. He's much more than the son of man. He's the son of God. Uh, and, and you understand this and you see it uh, so clearly speaking. Uh, turn to John chapter 4 because I want to show you something else here. I want to show you when the Samaritan woman speaks about the coming Messiah. 
John chapter 4, verse 25. Here's an example where Jesus deviated from saying the Son of Man one of the very few times and gave an insight into who he was. In verse 25, this is the colloquy with the Samaritan woman at the well. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Whoa. All right? You got people who say to you, well, Jesus never said he was God. Really? What Bible are you reading? What Bible are you reading? I just gave you Daniel chapter 7, in which it made it very clear what it means to be called Son of Man, walking into the very presence of ancient of days, God the Father, and being designated as being in charge of a kingdom that will last forever. And now, in chapter 4 of John, the Samaritan woman says, well, I know when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to you. Uh, and Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Let me tell you something, folks. Jesus didn't mince words. There's no ambiguity. Jesus Christ is God himself. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the, is the Son of Man. Now you understand what the Son of Man is and who, what the Son of Man will do and what it means to us to be part of that kingdom. We're going to continue this next week. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for the words that you've given us, for the lesson. Lord, I pray that these words resonate in our heart this week and grow as we get a, gre get a greater understanding of Jesus as the Son of Man. Bless our people. Protect them and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.